0: Hey everybody, Pastor Gary here. So we are now going to begin to wrap this story up. We're in chapter 8 this morning. Sorry, (laughs) technical difficulties with some things going on here. So we're going to be in chapter 8 this morning, and we only have two chapters remaining after this. We have just concluded chapter 7, in which perhaps one of the most vile racist men in history has been put to death. But we still have the fate of the Jewish nation hanging in the balance. Our story isn't over yet. The edict that Haman had written still is the law of the land. And so, in approximately nine months, it will give birth to the murder of all the Jews in Persia, unless this Persian law, which is irrevocable, can somehow be reversed. Our crazy soap opera, The Days of Esther's Life, is still hanging in the balance, and we need to find good, healthy closure to our story, right? All throughout our story, not once has God been mentioned. We have assumed and hoped for the best in the Jews, that while they're fasting, they're turning to God in prayer, but it hasn't ever stated that. More often than not, throughout our story, our characters have lived their lives as though they are the ones who are completely in control of every turn and event, just to find out that they truly have little control over their own fate regardless of their perceived power and might. Is it just dumb luck? Or perhaps it's karma. That's a term for some reason lately I've heard a lot of. Personally, I don't believe in karma. Karma is the belief that the universe is held in a constant struggle of balance between good and evil, right and wrong. If you believe in karma, I have a question. Who or what is measuring the scales upon which these concepts are balanced? To ensure that this precious balance is maintained nature the universe i'm not sure how either of those two answers honestly makes any logical sense the complexity upon which such an idea must be maintained must require vast amounts of intelligence and logic a supreme being of some sort i would think that is if such a concept were true i actually do not believe that such a balance exists Unfortunately, I believe that what we see within the Bible is that due to the fall of mankind in the garden of evil, evil or the garden of Eden, evil reigns in the hearts of men. Righteous acts and deeds are truly the exception, not the norm. Because more often than not, I believe that what we see or perceive as righteous acts performed by people are either one of two things. First, They are God at work, showing His grace and mercy through humanity. Or, they are actually self-satisfying, self-seeking, self-gratifying actions performed in order to gain glory that only God deserves. I know that that's not the most positive view of humanity. However, this is the story that the Bible tells on every single page of the Scriptures. We as humans will seek our own good far more often than we will truly seek the good of others. And more often than not, when we are doing good for others, is it not really for them, but rather for our own advancement? Does that then make that truly righteous, or is it self-righteous? There is a big difference. All that to say that I don't believe that there is a balance, or someone trying to even maintain a balance between good and evil. And as such, I don't believe karma is a reality in our lives. I believe that more often than not what we see is god at work bringing justice and we fail to give credit where credit is due no different than what we see in our story we need to strive daily to see what god is doing all around us and rejoicing in his works so let's continue our story and see just how the people rejoice at the works of god in their lives at the end of chapter 7 we have the death of Haman. And now in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we read, That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. What a complete reversal of circumstances. Haman, just a half chapter ago, was a wealthy man, second in power only to King Xerxes, hell-bent on murdering Mordecai the Jew and the Jews within Persia. Now, all of Haman's wealth is given to Esther the Jew, and then, in giving Mordecai the royal signet, Xerxes has replaced Haman as second over the kingdom Mordecai this unassuming quiet Jew is now second in the kingdom only to King Xerxes himself this turn of events is very interesting Esther is hidden from Xerxes her ethnicity and relationship with Mordecai and look how the king responds to this shocking news that had to be hidden he wasn't disturbed nor upset at all instead Xerxes response to promote Mordecai. Many see Esther's dubious acts here of hiding her ethnicity and relationship with Mordecai as lying to the king, and as such, then it is sinful. But our author isn't actually concerned with that question or problem. Instead, he is concerned with the fact that hiding the truth was truly not necessary. What if Esther had revealed this truth shortly after being crowned queen to her loving king? Perhaps. He would have promoted Mordecai then. How different our story would have been. However, that's not the story that God wanted written. And so I believe that he caused this information to be hidden. So that he might be shown to be the one that is shaping not only the lives of Mordecai and Esther, but he is the one who is truly shaping the Persian Empire itself. All things come under the sovereignty of God Almighty. When we do analyze as such this situation, what we should take away is that both Mordecai and Esther allowed fear to cause them to hide the truth. And what we should see is that oftentimes responses that are shaped by fear will lead us into complications that are far worse than would would have happened otherwise. We need to lean upon our faithful and true God and allow him to lead our lives in a better way the one true living way Esther still has a problem though she and Mordecai may yet be saved from the edict concerning the Jews simply due to their positions within the Empire but something must be done concerning her people and so in verse 3 Esther begins to plead with the king and we read Esther again pleaded with the king falling at his feet and weeping She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And so Esther falls before the king and begs for the lives of the Jews, the security of her people, just as Haman fell before the queen and begged for his life. However, I suspect our king is going to have a very different response this time. And in verses 4 through 6, we read, Then the king extended the gold scepter, yet again, to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. And she said, If it pleases the king, and if he regards me with favor, and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces, For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my own people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes extends the royal scepter and permits Esther to address him. And she begins with the royal formula of address. If it pleases the king, if he regards me with favor, if he thinks it the right thing to do, if he is pleased with me. Why has this become the formula that's needed to be used before addressing the king? because you never knew what kind of mood he was going to be in. And so in a sense, what you needed to do is prop up this fragile ego of this man and make him feel good about himself before you could address whatever it was you needed from the king. Then, and only then, does she feel comfortable getting into the real point. Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jew, He has devised and written an edict to destroy the Jews that are found in your provinces. Now, she never places the blame upon the king. She's careful not to do so, even though he is truthfully just as much at fault as Haman was. Instead, she lays it all upon Haman. These people who live within your borders, king, and therefore you are called to protect, are now going to die. How can she bear to see disaster fall upon her own people? Destruction fall upon her own family. She never once pleads for her own life in regard to the people of Israel. Instead, she makes it personal to the king by making it about family. My guess is that this was an important reality for our king, and that's why she uses it. Particularly as his kingdom would go to his firstborn, and his legacy would flow through his lineage so family would have been a very important concept to the king i believe one of the things that we should see here is that it is interesting it, that is interesting is that she never makes an appeal to whether to what is either right or wrong good or bad righteous or evil why not because those concepts didn't really matter to the king when it came to decisions that he made you see He had celebrated the edict that Haman had signed, the killing of thousands of people. He ruled from his emotions oftentimes and went wherever the wind might blow them. And so his response as such should not be surprising, even though it actually is a bit surprising. And so in verses 8 and 9 we read, Because Haman attacked the Jews, says the king, I have given his estate to Esther. They have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So the king is kind of saying, I've given you everything Haman owned, including his very life. Obviously, whatever you may want, you may have up to half the kingdom. That's what he's been saying all along, right? And so look, Just write another decree in my name, whatever seems best to you, and because Mordecai will sign it with my signet ring, it will be done, and cannot be revoked. The king doesn't really care what they do, right? And yet again, what a turn of events. Obviously, just dumb luck, right? Oh wait, maybe it's karma. Sorry, I just couldn't resist. God has turned things around so much that the very power that Haman earlier possessed in order to attempt to bring about the destruction of the Jews and the death of Mordecai, Mordecai himself now possesses in order to save the Jews. And in verses 9 through 14, we read about the writing of this edict and how it is sent out to the kingdom. The language Mordecai uses within the edict intentionally reflects the language of the original edict. I believe, in order to highlight the parallel nature between the two edicts, this new edict mandates a measure-for-measure measure retaliation by the Jews against their enemies. If anyone to attempt to carry out Haman's edict, the Jews were free to attack them along with their families and then to plunder their valuables. Just as Haman's edict had stated, except that Mordecai uses a very special Hebrew word here in verse 13 to describe those actions. The word speaks of a punitive retribution for a prior wrong. And so those who sought to destroy the Jews would share then in Haman's fate. It is so interesting that now the full weight of a pagan kingdom has been brought to bear and support the Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, which reads, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Through a pagan king and a pagan kingdom, God the creator of the heavens and the earth has brought brought protection to his people. Then in verse 15 we read, Mordecai then left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe, of fine linen and the city of susa held a joyous celebration all of the things that haman sought after personal recognition to appear as a king before the people mordecai now receives without ever seeking them this is god's reward for his faithful service mordecai is now clothed by the king in glory and in honor previously in esther chapter 3 verse 15 we had read about how Haman's edict throws the city of Susa into confusion by what the king had just agreed to. But now, we read that the city of Susa holds a joyous celebration because of Mordecai's edict. What a reversal of fortunes. Then in verse 16, 16, we read similarly, we read, For the Jew, it was a time of happiness, joy, gladness, and honor. Just prior to this, in chapter 4, verse 3, they had responded with four types of distress, mourning, fasting, weeping and wailing, now God has turned their sorrow to joy. And we read four very different responses, happiness, joy, gladness, and honor. But the most interesting transformation, however, occurs in the final verse of this chapter, where we read, In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews. Which isn't surprising, right? There was feasting and celebrating. And then it says, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because of fear of the Jews had seized them. This is irony at its best. Mordecai and Esther had been hiding for so long their true identity as Jews because of fear. And then just after she kind of comes out of the closet, in essence, many of the pagans around her choose to pretend to be Jews because of fear. Now, there may have been some who genuinely converted, but the way this is written, it does not appear that is the case for most, right? Most were motivated not because of their fear of the Lord, but because of their fear of the Jews. One is based in wisdom, the other in foolishness. As we have seen throughout our story, much of our behavior as well is motivated by perceptions that we hold concerning the future rather than by reality just like Mordecai and Esther and these pagans throughout our entire story thus far how much if anything has really ever changed for the average Jew Haman's edict truly had absolutely no effect upon anyone there was no killing nor looting that occurred because of this edict and this new edict that Mordecai wrote didn't radically transform their futures either in fact in the end Neither of these laws ever changed anything in the hearts of any of the people within the Persian empire. Yet the Jews wept and fasted at the first edict and acted as though their world had just been destroyed. When we look at the beginning of our story and now the end of our story, absolutely nothing has changed for the Jew. However, the Jewish perspective on life from the middle of the story to the end of the story is that they are now Is that they are now living within a wonderful new world even though nothing has really changed we human beings haven't changed a bit look a couple of months ago I found a lump in my left breast the doctor was fairly certain it was nothing but he required me to go get a mammogram which was not fun at all and an ultrasound because there is a history in my family for breast cancer and so we were just being cautious But in those two days, two days that I had to wait for those results, there were so many different imagined futures that my mind played out until I got a call that said it was nothing, just a growth of some unknown reason. But it is nothing. My health didn't actually change over that period of time, right? I wasn't healthier or sicker during that period of time. But my emotional response was a bit up and down. During that time. And you see, it's those emotional roller coaster periods that we need to recognize that we are on a roller coaster. We need to fasten our seatbelts and hold on. And in this analogy that I just used of a roller coaster, we need to see our seatbelt as the Holy Spirit. We need to wrap ourselves in the loving care and peace that comes from our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we need to hold on to every promise that Jesus who is perfectly faithful to us, has ever made. It's easy to poke at the Jews in our story for not doing this well. But we don't tend to do this very well oftentimes either. And I think that that is a big part of this story. Why is God not mentioned? Because we ourselves often, in the tough times, live like he's forgotten us. And in so doing, we forget about him and the many promises he has made to each and every one of us. One of the most important parts of our story is the peace that we recognize but oftentimes don't want to acknowledge. Haman was put to death for coming against the people of God and God caused Mordecai to write a second edict that was nothing short of declaring holy war against anyone who raised a hand against the people of God. Like I've said in the past, there are two groups of people within this world. There are those who I believe will be counted among the people of God and those who will not be. We, as the people of God, have a responsibility, I believe, to share the grace of God through his edict, his edict which is found and written in the very blood that was shed by his own son. God the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth, was so gracious and loving to send his own son to live within this world, to live a perfect, sinless life. That He might offer His life, Jesus's life, in our place as a sacrifice for our mistakes, for our wrongdoings, for our sin. And He willingly chose to die for us and have our sins placed upon Himself so that God the Father might pour out His full anger and wrath against the sin that is so prevalent within this world today. <sighs> And when he had done so, Jesus died, giving his life as a propitiation for ours. That is a means that is offered to satisfy the wrath of God. He took our place, and on that day, Jesus purchased each and every one of us from God the Father. He now holds our lives within his hands. And in the end, one day, we will either be identified as being in him or is being apart from him. Jesus acted as our Esther. He put aside personal interest and safety and risked dignity, honor, and even his own life in order to plead our case before God, the great King. Jesus Christ is our mediator. Jesus chose to go to the cross as our mediator. In Isaiah, In Isaiah 53, the prophet wrote of Jesus saying that he would be bruised for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities, dishonored for our glory, and plunged into darkness, that we who are rebellious sinners might see the light. This is the ultimate reversal of fortunes to which every reversal that is seen in the book of Esther points forward to. And how does our great king respond to the work of his son? It's not like Xerxes, who we just saw basically say, Do whatever you want. I don't really care. Do whatever you think is best. Most of us listening today, whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or not, could most likely quote or get very close to quoting John chapter 3, verse 16. It is the most memorized verse in all of scriptures. But we have ripped this verse so far out of context that it's hard to understand what's really being said. What is Jesus saying in this passage? I'm going to read John chapter 3 verses 16 through 21 because when we see the true heart of our own true king, our God, it reads, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We all know that part, right? But what about the rest of the story? It reads from chapter 17 on, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Our Father who is in heaven seeks to honor and glorify the servants of his Son. But an edict has been written, and those who stand apart from the Son will know destruction. I cannot lie. This truth brings me fear, not personal fear, but fear for my family and friends, fear that I may not see them after this life. My hope is that all of you today, either right now, find yourselves in Christ, or today perhaps you will choose to place your faith in your own true King. Your Father who art in heaven, Christ your King, Jesus your Savior. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one and nothing can ever separate us from the love of Jesus So let us every day of our lives celebrate our deliverance with unshakable and glorious joy. Let the peace that comes from Jesus' completed victory daily guard our hearts and minds against the craziness of our experiences within this fallen, sin-sick world. We need to look forward to the day when the end will indeed come, when we too will be able to sing along with all the redeemed saints, to the praises of God the Father and the risen Lamb. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would touch our hearts this day, that we might know you. Open our eyes, that we might all see Jesus, and fill us with your Spirit, that we might be sealed until the day comes, that we might stand before you and know you fully. Amen.